Mr. Emilio, how are you, my friend? I am very well. Thank you for having me over. Thanks for being here. That background looks beautiful. You look like you're sitting in a real, real nice place in the middle of Los Angeles, California. Is that correct? I am. I'm in a quite a sanctuary of a, of a home, I am, which is an interesting thing even for me to share because I, at one point in my life, I was going down the simplicity route and really wanting to shrink down and you know have a small place somewhere in the mountains. And yet I'm married to this very ambitious woman and I have three teenage kids who are in a different stage of life of a lot of expansion. And I ended up in a, in a big place <laughs> in the middle of LA. How big is your home? Uh, house is probably 9,000 square feet. 9,000 square feet in Los Angeles. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Maybe we see maybe that home's on. Have you watched uh, Selling OC on Netflix? I haven't, no. Selling Sunset. No. Maybe we've seen your home in one of those scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been here I, for about four years or so. I, this is a good place for us to start because I know that you grew up in a very affluent uh, family. Um, were you born in Mexico? I was born in Mexico City. Mexico City, right. And, um, so you've been exposed to money your whole life. Here's my first question for you. Can money buy happiness? Hmm. Yes. And let me qualify that. Um, I think anything can buy happiness. The, see what I, what I was raised with was an abundance of money and, uh, scarcity of a lot of other things and i wasn't happy and everyone around me wasn't happy and when i dove deep into my spiritual and psychological journey i thought that the route to happiness was the opposite than what i had grown up and experienced in a similar way that someone that may grow up with scarcity or low economic resources thinks that happiness will solve it at some level i thought that getting rid of all the material stuff was going to solve it for me. Mm. And I noticed how doesn't matter the environment that we're raised in, as long as we're putting conditions on what makes us happy, then we're always going to be chasing. And I certainly grew up around people that had way more than enough and we're still chasing something. And I, I bought onto that idea and I chased for most of my life. When did you start realizing that, hey, I've got all these great things and I, people complain about money and they can't do this, they can't do that. I can do all this, yet something's missing. When did that really start hitting you? Well, I, I couldn't always do it. The fact that I was raised in an affluent uh, family didn't necessarily mean I had money. My family had money and it was great growing up and I had a lot of access to things, but after college, I had to figure things out on myself, which was a weird dichotomy because here I was being able to take family vacations that were incredibly, or go back home being incredibly comfortable. And then all of a sudden having to figure things out on my own. And, uh, and that was hard because I left Mexico city to the, for the States. And I decided to stay here in the U S and I knew no one, I had no network and I had to start from scratch and I had always relied somehow on my last name to open doors for me. And that just wasn't the case here in the US. So, so I, you, yeah, let me ahead. ask you, Emilio. So you you were 
you were you you were privy to the the high life. You were privy to all these beautiful things, like you say, these vacations, these tropical getaways. I'm sure fancy cars, homes, great dinners. You you saw all that growing up. When you went out on your own, did you have to start with literally nothing, or did you have help from the family to at least get you going? You know, I always the greatest thing I had was I knew I could fail. I knew I could risk it all. And I would use all of, all of my, I was, I was very entrepreneurial since a very young age in middle school and high school. So I had savings, but I would always spend them in taking risks and I'd figure it out and I'd become scrappy. And I, I, I failed so many times with all of the businesses that I started, most of the businesses that I started. And I finally started getting successful, mostly out of timing and luck and a few other uh, factors, but having a family that I knew was there and that I would never miss on food or shelter or health or anything was part of what helped me take those risks. So even though I was quote unquote figuring it out on my own, I really wasn't. I had a, a huge backbone. You had the backing, you had the, the security blanket, but you That's were, right. but you were taking the resources you had and you were putting them into things. You weren't trying to sit on it or you weren't trying to necessarily blow it on fancy, a fancy lifestyle. It was, Hey, I'm going to take a risk and do this. Give us a one or two examples. What were some of those things that you were going for that ultimately weren't working out for you? Oh, I was doing it. I, I had fear of missing out. And I, because I was born with uh, this platform, it was incredibly challenging for my ego when people started being successful. People of my own age started being successful. Cause I thought I had such a leg up and all of a sudden this is back in the, 1999.com world where I was had friends starting up businesses and all of a sudden IPOing and I was like, shit, I gotta, I gotta hurry up. And some of the things I was doing, I literally had to keep a worksheet of all the businesses I was involved with because I would have to track them because I'm forgetting. Because I'd be saying yes to every opportunity. Some of them were wholesaling minutes. I was the I had a Hispanic marketing company here in the US. I actually bluffed my way into being the Hispanic marketing agency for a division of Coca-Cola. And, you know, it was, it was all sort of smoke and mirrors most of the time. And uh, actually all of the time. What Until do you mean by bluffing? Because you were using your, your family name to get there. What do you mean by bluffing? I was using a lot of my family name, but I was also, the bluffing comment was, uh, I remember being on a lot of calls and having the computer pulled up and researching the things that were part of the conversation to understand more about these things. And bro, I think there was a, a website, uh, house stuff, something. And I was able to pretend to know what I was talking about just by doing a very quick read and then reflecting something on the conversation. Or I would, you know, I remember when the, I was actually meeting with the CMO of Coca-Cola, which chief marketing officer of, of this huge entity. And I had a, a three person business and he, he flat out asked me, how do you expect me to sort of trust how, how many employees do you have? And I didn't want to lie. So I went and I thought of every one of the houses that my family members had and all the sort of the people that worked at the homes that took care of the homes. And I came up with this random number of like 20 something. And you know, it, it was still incredibly small in his perspective, but for me, it made me feel solid. And, you know, I, I could get through the door because I could bluff my way into the door, but then I had to deliver. Yes. And, Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. So just so people understand, when you say that you're using your family's last name and your family was well-known and you came from, just briefly, was it your grandfather? Who's the one that my, started? My great-grandfather started um, 
a company called Televisa, which wasn't called that back in the day, which is a, the largest Spanish language media company in the world. He also started Univision, which is here based in the US, but then because of foreign ownership restrictions had to, um, had to sell a piece of it or uh, have a US partner. So it was a very prominent company. It still is, but it was even more back then. So I was able to, to get in the door into things by, by using that. And, and I had a very strong identity associated with that. And it took me a while to shed it because I, I thought that that was where, my, where people would perceive me as valuable. If I was so used to being seen as someone that could offer value because I grew up in this and everyone around me growing up was like, oh, I have a, this, I have a friend who sings, I have a friend who acts, I have a, because that was sort of the gateway for, it's almost like imagine all of the big movie studios, music production houses and TV producers here in the US clogged up into one. Mm. I'm curious to know, you grew up with all these things. Do you think that in a way it was a hindrance toward your own personal development, your happiness? Because what I mean by that is you grow up with, with the exposure to all these fantastic things. I, I related to like the bachelorette or the bachelor, you know, the TV show on ABC, these people, they start and they go on the most beautiful dates throughout the entire world in their first couple of weeks of knowing each other, you could only go down from here when you get back <laughs> to real life and reality. So the kind of the same analogy, you got exposed to anything and everything you wanted. And then you had to go into your adult life. I mean, do you feel like it maybe was a, a hindrance in any way? You know, I think we all have our cross to bear. I think what it did for me is to rid me of the excuse. I, I grew up with a lot of friends that were almost as affluent as I was. Very few were, were at that level. But, and, and I saw where their life ended up or where their life headed. And I somehow had a chip in me that I was always going to be going and driven and outrunning the success of my family. So the, it, it, was, it may have seemed like a, like a hindrance, but it was really a turbo boost that got infused in me. Rather than making me complacent, it made me want to run faster. So it was incredibly valuable to the degree, because I, I didn't catch up onto the idea that really money wasn't going to do it for me until much later in life. I was still convinced that if I was powerful enough, I was going to be able to sort of really feel happy and content, uh, which brings uh, just on a tangent, because I grew up seeing people around me being quite authoritarian, I associated success with having to be authoritarian. Mm. And because I'm much more um, of, a, of a, I would say, just open-hearted and, and collaborative and a people person, I, I was confused because I thought that wasn't, it wasn't possible to actually be successful and, and retain that. And, and that, that was a misunderstanding I had to really break through for a while. But back to sort of the, the, the running fast, what running fast allowed me to do is to get to disillusionment quicker. Explain. I ran so fast yeah. that I got to success, to all the things that I thought were going to do it for me and realized they weren't doing it mm. in a relatively quick manner. How old were you at that point, approximately? Uh, early 30s. Early 30s. You had been busting Early to mid 30s. Yeah. Early to mid 30s. How long were you living in the States at that point? Uh, about uh, 15, uh, 15 years or so. Okay. So, so you, well, 10, 12 years. Yeah. 
Okay. So you came here around uh, late teens, early 20s to the States. Yeah, I came for college. Yeah. Early 20s. Is that and where I you went to stayed. Harvard right off the rip or was that later? I, I started in Mexico and then I, I went to Harvard and, uh, and then to Boston University. The Harvard experience is an interesting one. And in it was the first time also that I was surrounded by people that were incredibly talented and dedicated. And it was incredibly humbling. And I was so used to getting away with things and Harvard didn't let me get away with anything. So mm. Harvard was incredibly humbling. When you say you were used to getting away with things, what do you mean? You were used to getting away with, with putting in a little less effort and still succeeding? Yeah. 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 I, I, was, I was good at memorizing. I don't want to call it smart. I was good at memorizing. So I could study for a test the day before and ace it. And that wasn't viable in, in the Harvard <laughs> landscape. <laughs> Did you find that but people I, at Harvard, Emilio, were people there really competitive where they almost don't even want to help it? They're, they're, partners out they don't want to help the other students out because it's such a, a ultra competitive environment it's every man for himself it, you know it's hard to generalize but i certainly saw that for the first time there and a lot more than i've ever seen it since mm -hmm. and and it'll tell you a little bit of my psychology at that point i was so invested at that time in being smart that when i really tried at harvard and i got a c plus in my first exam I decided, shit, I'm going to be like, this is so defeating to my ego. I'm going to be the guy that parties like the kids at the other schools that hangs out with the guys in the other schools and gets the C plus or C because then people would say, oh, if you only really tried, you for sure ace at Harvard. But it was my safety mechanism of going out often and partying and not really putting in the effort at first because I, then people would tell me, wow, you're here partying until 2 a.m. and you're at Harvard? Uh, you must be so smart. So it was my, it was my attachment to identity. And I, I noticed how that attachment to identity has played out in so many ways throughout my life. And where the moment that I become this uh, sort of defender of how I want to be perceived, I, uh, I short sell myself. So I'll dig into that a little bit, because you've done a lot of personal development, self-help, all this kind of stuff, this awakening, the consciousness, all this Looking back, what do you think was the main cause that was causing you to react that way? Deep down, I felt like the way that people saw me determined my value. Well, what was making you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What was making no, no, you feel that way? The, what was making you think to myself, the way that this person's perceiving me is the way I have to, I have to almost be a chameleon regardless of my situation, yes. right? Yeah. Where was that coming from? Again, does that go back to this, the, the pressure of being associated with this ultra successful family in Mexico? Did that, did that start from your young roots? It, it's likely that it did. I don't think it's exclusive to having those kinds of roots. I think deep down at our core, most of us, whether we know it or not, and I didn't know it for a very long time, have this sort of Western virus of unworthiness. Of, I'm not good enough. And I was really good at hiding that. And the way that I hid that was by propping up all of my feathers in any way I could. It was just as much hiding my unworthiness from the outside world as it was from, from me. And I would tell you, no, I'm the most confident guy. What do you mean? I'm president of the class, homecoming king. I sort of, is this, I'm the most popular. I'm, I've got the girls, I've got the things. And, and somehow all of that was a way to keep this 
thing going from that really was distracting me from really feeling at the core of my being. Fuck, what if I'm, what if I'm not good enough? Mm. Wow. So you're going about your business, right? You're in your twenties, you're working hard, you're doing all these things. You're tripping, you're falling, you're, you're one step forward, two steps back, maybe sometimes three steps forward, one step back. And you're finding your way and you're realizing, okay, once I get to this level of success, I'm finally going to feel this, this satisfaction, this fulfillment, this happiness. And then, as you mentioned too earlier, you're in your early thirties and you kind of get there. Right. And then you're, and then you're, you ultimately achieve what you think you needed to achieve and you still, still feel the same way. Yeah. So what what happens at that point? Yeah. I, I was also very proficient and not experiencing discomfort and not experiencing that sense of, I was always going somewhere. So, and always searching for more. So the moment that I realized that searching for more material possessions or external validation wasn't going to do it through that route, I quickly shifted to self-growth and spirituality. And, but then what was weird is it became that path became the new highway to compete on what was that moment though for you though emilio i'm sorry to keep starting and stopping but i really want to dig into the the mentality and the emotional state what was that moment like for you you're in your early 30s and you get there and it still still feels hollow or or you're not fulfilled was that like a a pretty low moment was it a a, a moment of oh my god i need to change myself like how how did you feel it was it was all of those, a combination of all of those feelings. It started with denying it, right? It started with thinking, no, I'm going to, uh, it's just because it's not enough, right? And because part of what was happening is that my mind, and I think most of our minds operates through comparison. So the people that I was comparing myself to early on, I was way ahead of them. I was way ahead of what were sort of anyone in my age category was. So I felt great. And I, yet this comparison was still operating. And I noticed how this continuously moving carrot had now created a new, a new sort of top. And I think it was, I, used to, I started doing meditation at that point and started just being a little bit, slowing down my thoughts and, and analyzing them and questioning. And it was actually the first time that I, that I was caught out of my own control consciously, where, where I realized, oh shit, what if, what if this doesn't end? And and when I say that, so emotionally, it was the beginning of devastation and disillusionment, but I didn't let it get there. I wasn't mature enough in myself to allow for that disillusionment to, to really set ground because disillusionment is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. But in that moment, it was presented to me and I quickly found something else to cover it. Because, okay, in my mind, what happened is like, if I'm not going to be the most successful, I, I literally thought I'm going to be the, the most successful businessman in the world, not just in Mexico. And when I kind of dawned on me, oh, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not going to be that. What can I be the most in what category? I said, well, I'm going to be the most spiritual. I'm going to be the most enlightened. So now I'm going to go and use all that tight pay personality to go on, you know, 10 silent retreats a year, read every book and because if I'm really in line, then I'll feel good about myself and everybody will love me. And deep down, no one will abandon me. So this, this was the, the driving force behind, behind this new carrot that I had found. 
and that had to run its course as well. Yeah. So you you were placing still a tremendous amount of value at that point in your life on the thoughts of others. How do others perceive me? If somebody thinks highly of me, that validates me. If somebody thinks lowly of me, that <laughs> that takes away from my my worth, my self worth. Yeah, and more importantly, if I if I it was my continuous measuring myself up against everything. Like if I had a girlfriend or or a partner, and another guy would walk in, I would be very competitive internally in myself. Like I would measure that individual up and say, okay, are they this? Are they that? Are that? And I would have this list of things that I valued as important. And I would see where I ranked against that individual. Mm. And, I, and let me just tell you this, Emilio, I do have done that too before. So tell me, tell me how you re, re, uh, reframe those thoughts eventually. Yeah, they were, I don't know if you find them exhausting, but they were so exhausting. What I, what I did at one point, and I'll go back to how I, how I addressed it. What I did at one point was because the typical things were on that list before. It's like good looking has money is, is sort of a good gentleman, funny, like all these things that I thought women valued. Right. And, and it was impossible to always be people on that scale. And then entered this new paradigm of spirituality. And I was like, Oh, if I can be all those things and be super conscious, wow, then I'm for sure going to be the most desirable man. The, the comparison, the jealousy, the, all of this, the only thing that really shifted it for me was allowing myself to fully experience what I was running away from. Let me give you some a visual for that. There's a Zen koan of this stick figure with a pole on their heads. And in the front of the pole, there's a carrot. In the back of the pole is a bag of shit. And essentially what it represents is that we are, and we're, I think we're very familiar with the premise of we're always chasing something. And we think that when we chase it, it's going to be the ending satisfaction and it isn't. And, but what I hadn't been exposed to was the bag of shit framework. Bag we're of always what, running away <laughs> Of shit. Bag of shit. That's what I thought you said. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're always running away from something. And we think that if we outrun this thing, then we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And this thing for me was, whether you call it being abandoned or jealousy or feeling not good enough or having the deal fall through, what, what, you know, all these things that I was always running away from. Comparing, what ended up changing it was stopping and facing the bag of shit. And letting my body, not my mind, letting my body experience the energy that I was running away from. And I was not familiar with truly being in my body so much. So it, it, took, it took some additional attention and awareness, but to actually feel what feeling not good enough felt like in my body, which was like this contraction in the pit of my stomach, this sort of hard energy, and to let that be there for as long as it wanted, to change my relationship with it. Because for so long, all these things that I was running away from, the moment that they arose, I, I ran away from them, I coped with them, I did whatever I needed to not experience them. So to shift that relationship into one of like curiosity, what is this like here? It, I noticed that the resistance 
to all these things that I was running away from was what was making them so uncomfortable rather than the but you had to you had to itself. surrender Emilio. you had to surrender yeah I had to surrender not as a strategy but as a giving up see because I knew how to surrender because when we become psychologically self-growth oriented or even spiritually sophisticated we hide our agendas in all these nice packages and I became really good at having subtle agendas but the deepest surrender is where we give up our agendas see i knew how to surrender in order so in order for me to get something oh i'll surrender so i feel better but that's a very different surrender than i'll surrender even if i'm going to feel crappy for the rest of my life wow and that was hard that was hard and like everything looking back it really was much simpler than i thought and i invite anyone listening whatever is present in their bodies right now like whatever contraction when we think of something that stresses us out what would it be like if when something is experienced somatically we would just let it be there and we'd actually even just get curious with it and deep to the, speak to the surrender what if we let it what what if it was like a sword pointing into our chest and we would just lean into it because that's sometimes what it felt like for me like i was going to die with some of these deep cuz i was so trained to avoid them hmm. so how long did that process take you once you discovered this to ultimately really having a relationship with it that was healthy that's got to be a process it was a process. There's this great quote of how did you go bankrupt? Uh, what was it? Uh, gradually and then all at once. <laughs> right. it, it, yeah. yeah. It, it was it was a process, but I think the the courage, I call it courage, it wasn't courage. The capacity came from tiredness. I was at a nine-day silent retreat. This is the, the if I could sort of narrow it down to one event it really wasn't one event but if i could narrow it down i describe it almost like if my whole life had been a like a balloon and i was pumping this balloon with everything that i thought would aggrandize this balloon and this balloon was a certain size at any given moment but it always had like a pinprick hole in it so it was always just deflating and i was always inflating and i wanted to keep up with the big balloon and i would look around at other balloons and see how big they were and, and depending on where my balloon was in comparison to everyone else i would feel a certain way and the what i what i blew into the balloon like i said before it started as material possessions accumulations grades girls cars blah, blah. eventually it became consciousness experiences highlights insights better x y or z and in one of these in silent retreats, like a day eight of a 10 day or nine day, it almost felt like this little pinprick hole became a gash. And all the fuel that I was pumping in had nowhere else to go. So it was, when you, when you talk about like heartbreak, that was like complete defeat of all my orientation in life. 
what was it about the silence after over a week of silence that caused you to get to that point? What was it? You know, silence offers little distractions. So I was so used to distracting myself whenever any of these feelings surfaced. And I was so good at it. It almost felt like keeping inflated balls underwater. I was really good at keeping inflated balls underwater because I always had something else to put my attention on. But being still at a meditation retreat for that long forces you to look at your stuff. And just, it was really just no, no, no credit to me other than just exhaustion, where it's almost like the, the monster was chasing me. And at some point, I just was too tired to run. I was like, and it almost felt like the experience, you know, when you're playing a video game and it's, it's almost like there's the, there's the happy experiences, but there's the moment where you just want to throw the remote and you literally just throw it. like, I'm, I, I can't win this. I can't do this. It was that level of, of disillusionment. Mm. So that was a, an epiphany, like an awakening moment for you. Yeah. It's the moment that shifted more dramatically my life because the, I had to, the, the fuel I had been relying on for most of my life, which was very quick burning, very fast, but very unsustainable, very depleting, was no longer available. Right. So, and you were about in your mid-30s at that point? That was more like late 30s. Late mid, 30s? Mid, yeah, mid-30s. Mid-30s, mid yeah. And, and how long and ago, was, how many years ago was that? That's maybe about, well, the... That time is more about nine years ago. So nine I was, I'm already 46. So, yeah. Okay. So you were in your late 30s, 37-ish, plus or minus. Yeah. And I'm running a business and I've got lots of things going on. So all of a sudden I come back and I have employees and people to manage. And it's like, how do I, how do I even talk to them now? How, like, if I'm not going somewhere, how do I, I, I and it, and it's, it was an immature realization at that point. It was not to take credit, it was huge, but it hadn't matured to become operational. Mm -hmm. It was just the beginning was, of a, it was the beginning of a new journey for you, really. Yeah, I had to almost start over and say, okay, how do I do this from here? Right. Yes. And I'll tell yes, you, absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's incredible when I can now Operate. I, I, back in the day, I was like, well, there's, if, if I truly lived like that, I would be living in a cave doing nothing. Like I'd just be a doormat. And, and I've never been more engaged and active in the world as I am now. I've never been doing so many things. And I don't remember the last time I experienced stress. Did this make you, look? looking back, did this make you question everything when it came to what you saw in the generations before you, your family? your parents, your grandparents, obviously the stories of your great-grandfather, the associates, the people you were surrounded, it kind of just put a whole new perspective in place on, if I'm dealing with this, what were they dealing with? Were they, maybe they were right about things, maybe they were wrong about things, maybe it was just different. Did it kind of make you just look at everything a little differently? Yeah, it did. But one of the byproducts of this experience is that a lot of um, love and compassion came in. So. In the past, I had judged generationally 
many habits and behaviors that some of which I had adopted and some of which what I, I, they were still managing me just in a reactive pattern. Like I, I saw this, so I'll do the opposite, but it was still reactive. And it almost like this experience allowed me to look at all of that as if it was a movie and recognizing the, just the ignorance and the lack of resources and how people were doing the best they knew how to do. And, and as a parent, it forced me to reevaluate a lot of the things that I grew up not questioning. Like what does success mean? You know, what does being a good human being look like? And, and that was, that was another part of the journey, right? Like really discovering that for myself. And for the first time asking those questions, it's almost like I, I had never allowed myself to really question those things. Someone comes up to you. Yeah. Someone comes up to you, Emilio now and says, Emilio, what does success mean? You've lived a long life at this point, a good fruitful life. What would you say? Let me say that success is a story we tell ourselves. Success is, can be successful in one day and unsuccessful another day, depending on our inner narrative. So to the degree that you are at peace with your inner narrative, you are successful. Mm, Wow, that's beautiful. If you are at peace with your inner narrative, you are successful. Wow. Because I can be the most, and we've all met those incredibly successful individuals in the world that we feel like they have it all together. And then you really pierce through that and you see sort of where their inner poverty is at. And we've met the people that are having apparently a really difficult time in life and yet how content they can seem. Yes. So true. And this all led you to uh, write your, your book, which came out earlier this year, the mystery of you freedom is closer than you think. Talk a little bit about the book. Why'd you write you know, it? It's, Who's it for, et cetera. Yeah. It's for me back in those early 30 days when, uh, I was starting to get curious about books around self-growth or spirituality, but all these books that I was reading were written mostly, at least the spiritual books, by teachers or gurus who didn't match my lifestyle. They weren't running businesses. They weren't parents. They weren't sort of dealing with the things that I was dealing with. And I thought, well, if I have this entrepreneurial sort of ambitious bug in me, then I have to wait until this is over in order to even consider that inner peace or inner freedom are available to me. And the truth is that they're available right in the middle of all this chaos. And I do a lot of mentoring. And a lot of the people that I mentor, I realize there's this recurring patterns that as humans, we operate under. It's almost like we have this operating system that is pretty sort of, it's got a lot of common denominator coding in there. And so some of the things that I, that I do with my mentors, they were encouraging me, you know, in order to scale this, maybe there's a way to share it with more people. So I, f- I tell some other stories and I, and I give some tools on the sort of mental, physical, spiritual, uh, sort of emotional level that can help address some of the ways in which I think we were raised. The joy lies within the journey, right? That's, that's really your message. Yeah, the, the joy lies in the story that we're telling ourselves about the journey. And because I, I really want to bring it back to this our inner commentator, right? And, mm-hmm. and if, if, you know, we, we speak of, of moments of flow or of, of being in the zone or all these things, and how I perceive those are moments where the distance or the separation between us and life gets narrower. 
it's almost like we have ourselves and the rest of life. And we have this layer in between that's telling us, oh, I like this. I don't like this. This is good. More of this, less of this. This is sort of optimal or not. And I believe that in those moments of flow, it almost feels like this intermediary layer gets really thin. And we are experiencing the moment without, with less of that inner commentator. Less comparison to the outside world? Yeah, less, less opinion, less protagonism, less. It sounds like we're, when we're in a hike. I compare often when I talk to entrepreneurs, they're like, but how do you operate a business from this place? I'm like, imagine you're hiking. And imagine when you're hiking, you're overthinking every step. When you're hiking, you're thinking you want to go to the top. But if you, if you have to choose every moment where you're going to walk, and you evaluate all the challenges that are out there and what the possible things that can go wrong, it's going to be exhausting. But what if, what if, and, it, and what happens to me in hiking is that it really feels like there's not a lot of commentating happening. This, this layer gets quite thin. Mm -hmm. So the joy of the journey to me is the degree to which there is thickness in that layer. Interesting. Very, very fascinating stuff. We will make sure we link your book in the show notes. Anywhere else that you want people to go to find your work? I, you're, you're, I know your uh, what your company is Nala Investments. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's um, I run a couple of family offices and, and a venture investment firm. Uh, but really, the website is emiliosbook.com, and all proceeds go to a foundation that develops a curriculum for children for well-being. Emiliosbook.com. And again, guys, if you want to learn more about Emilio, take a look, uh, link in the show notes. Hey, um, this is really fascinating stuff. And I'm always astounded when I get to talk to people like you that have done so much personal growth, personal development, self-help, self-awareness. Uh, for people that are struggling, to finish it off, last question. People that are struggling, we've had a tough several years um, through this pandemic and everything that it's caused, the mental issues and sadness and stress. Um, what's your, what's your message to those people? First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and just really connect with the fact that it has been tough for a lot of people. And I wish there was an easy fix. What I know to be most helpful is to connect with the moment directly and to notice the stories that we're telling ourselves, because if we keep recounting how difficult it's been, we're just perpetuating that cycle. So in any given moment, if you're experiencing stress, challenge, upset, drop into your body. What does that actually feel in my body right now? Can I let that be here? And then from there, you'll notice a lot more spaciousness, a lot more creativity come online. Beautifully said, my friend. Hey, uh, fantastic, insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Continued success. And uh, not just with your business, but more importantly, with yourself, your life, your family, et cetera. So all the best to you. Thank you so very much. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed our talk.